Right. Thank you so much for coming along to this afternoon's seminar. Um, this is very much me not saying very much, and my, my three colleagues here um, saying most of what's going on. So um, we've got Shri, pronounce your surname for me. Opadieya. Shri Opadieya and Rashid Skinner, who are both um, consultant clinical psychologists working locally here for Bradford District Care Trust. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I think it would be fair to say neither of you are Christians, but you both have an interest in spirituality. So they're going to be speaking from that point of view, and they're both on the um, Trust's Spiritual Care Committee, which is all about how to make sure we address spirituality within Bradford District Care Trust. And um, Mel Meeson, who is formerly a social worker and then spent a while employed in a very interesting job in Hull, which he's going to tell you about, and now has come back to the dark side working for the NHS again. So she's going to be telling us about some of the amazing things that she has um, been getting up to in Hull. So if you put the next slide up, Frank, um, that's what we're going to do. Um, sorry, Rashid Antri, brief Q&A, just questions of clarity around the talk. We're going to try and say less rather than more, but then we do want to have a bit of group work at the end of a, a panel as well, because one of my hopes is that we can really sort of put a bit of spirituality back into, back into the NHS, um, which is happening already, but I want to find out how we can do that even better. Okay, just the next slide there. Very interested to know, I, I was going to sort of it's very difficult to know how people want to define themselves. Um, what we found at the last Mind and Soul conference is that roughly one-third of people were a mental health professional employed by the government or something like that, like the NHS. Roughly one-third of people were professional Christians, counsellors, working for churches, pastors, pastoral workers. And roughly one-third of people were um, people just with a personal interest, either a friend, a relative, a carer, or their own experience. Um, I'm not going to ask people to define themselves today, but purely for the purposes of this, I would be quite interested to know who does work or has worked for the NHS in this room. Excellent. So over half, I think. And given that the NHS is the largest employer locally, perhaps that's not surprising. Okay, a little bit of history, just to set it in context, the next slide. Um, this is um, on... Ah, well, I apologise, I've forgotten. The images have been eaten by the computer. But I had here a picture of a monk giving someone a herb. And just wanted to sort of point out that a long time ago, if you go back several hundred years, the church was the health service. And uh, just wanted to plug a book. I'm sure there's other good books on the topic, but this is a great book. It's called Healing in the History of Christianity, and it's a full overview of healing right through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and everything that's happened since. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to sort of read through and sort of think, actually, in this country, certainly, the church was, was very much behind the delivery of health care. And obviously, in other continents, it, it was other faith groups. But a very long history of involvement between spirituality and health care. And then the next slide is about the church in the health service. And I had a picture of a, a chaplain here, an Anglican chaplain with a dog collar, or presumably Anglican. And just wanted to sort of say a word about the history of chaplaincy and that when the NHS was set up, the Church of England and in Scotland, the Church of Scotland were asked to provide chaplaincy roles. And that's been changing and morphing over time. Other faith groups have come in as honorary chaplains. Um, now certainly in Scotland, where I work, we're moving towards what's called generic chaplaincy. So people providing spiritual care but with the option of a particular faith cleric coming in for a particular thing, such as if you're a Catholic, a Catholic priest coming to do Mass that you wouldn't take from a, a, another cleric. But a lot of the generic chaplaincy role around providing a spiritual input into your care still being so. There's, the church has always been in the health service to a fair extent. I'd also just say something, there's, there's been a lot written, um, the next slide, this book by Simon Robinson, professor locally at Leeds Metropolitan University of um, Spirituality and Healthcare, has written an awful lot, and he, he has this to say in his book, he says, most of us do not take ser seriously our search until we face the adversity that challenges our belief systems. And, you know, so it could be actually that your Christianity is deepened, by a period of illness, because you actually have to sort of think, well, does God really exist? Parents always told me, but actually this is a chance for, for me to work this out for myself. And also, attention to spirituality will support the healing process, and it may lead to healing in itself. And certainly one of the things that I think Shri and Rashid are going to touch on is some of the evidence for it. 
So there is evidence for involving spirituality. The, the next slide. There's also a requirement to consider spirituality. And I think Mel's going to touch a bit more on this. But the NHS has a requirement to do things in a fair manner. And we're working in the NHS to what's called a single equality framework. And that means that it's no longer acceptable just to think about race when you're facing a person of coloured skin. Okay? What, what, what it means is that you have to be a little bit more savvy in how you think about race. You have to think for everybody, asking them proactively, how do they think their ethnic group relates to the particular treatment that's being offered to them? And spirituality is going to come under that as well. So we need to be proactively asking people what their faith is, and whether that's a mainstream religion, or of course some people in censuses put, put Jedi. But, you know, I think most people are going to define themselves as being part of a fairly mainstream group of spirituality or agnostic or atheist and how that relates to their health care. And increasingly the NHS is being marked, if you like, on on how well it does that. And it does seem from some clinicians to say, oh, that's just a bureaucratic exercise. I want to get on with the job of treating the illness. But actually what people are saying is that age, gender, disability, sexuality, race and faith and belief are the pillars of equality. And I... I think I might have missed one, but apologies if I have. I think those are the main ones there. Now, when you start having some of these kind of dialogues, just the next slide there, Frank, there are, there are good experiences and, and bad experiences. Sorry, I'll come on to that one in a sec. There's, there's good experiences in networking and bad experiences in networking. Churches can often feel very shut out of the NHS, but it's great to have Mel here saying something about situations where it's worked really well, and both partners have worked very hard to get things together. And... A lot of it is shared goals. You know, we often say things like um, 90% of what Christians are trying to do is shared with other faith groups, and a similarly high percentage is shared with organisations like the NHS, and trying to work towards, you know, we all want to see people healthy and happy, if that makes sense. You know, I don't think that's not anyone's goal. And one of the sort of things that that also is a goal but I just want to introduce you to this idea of social capital and social capital is a word that if you read much sociology you'll come across and it says social capital is relationships between neighbours and colleagues, friends casual acquaintances and having a value for the individual and for the society as a whole and when you start networking and you start making these connections and these parallel connections and these organic connections and these official committees and all the different things that go into networking, even before you've got to the end product, that in itself is good for society because it means that you're talking to people who've got a different perspective from you. Maybe you've got something you can learn. Maybe you've got things that you can share and do together. And social capital is is so important when we're talking about this. And there's there's a wonderful book here by Alison Gilchrist from Bristol called The Well-Connected Community. And it's all about how we might be able to build our communities together. And you don't have to agree everything with everybody in order to be in a relationship with them. So you can have people from different faith groups on a panel. You can have people from the church and the NHS on a panel together. There's no problem with that because networking is not about boundaries, it's about opportunities. So without further ado, I'm just going to hand over to Rashid and Sri to tell us something of the work they do in Bradford and some of their understanding as to how spirituality and the NHS can link together. Brilliant. Do I press a button or something? Is this one on? Try now. Uh, Oh. Thank you very much. I think it is on, isn't it? Um, Yes, well, she and I represent the Spiritual Committee of the Bradford District Care Trust, and this arose in response to patient demand from a survey that was conducted, I think, ten years ago or more. And, you know, there were periodic um, directives in the NHS to do things, and ten, eleven years ago there was a directive to survey patients on their needs. And a large number said that their spiritual needs were not being catered for or being trampled on, ignored. And in response to that, I was asked to set up a committee. I I don't know why me, I've forgotten. I think it's because I trained as a Jungian. Um, I was trained in maybe the one theory in psychology which very clearly addresses the spiritual. And the core membership, I suppose, is now a couple of Anglican chaplains... Sri, myself, um, so he's representing Hinduism and Islam, and a couple of very able managers, um, one of whom is here today, Margaret Hanson. And other people have popped in and out and give assistance, but that's the core group. 
the first thing we did was to come to a definition of spirituality, and I'll mention this because I, when I've been to other forums and discussions around spirituality, something I'm aware of is was everybody has their own sort of view of what they're talking about, and it's very often different to other people's. And we took a broad de- definition and saw it as covering three aspects. One is the outer, the, say, the behavioural level. Um, religion in the sense of diet and do you go to confession and who you can marry and how you say your prayers, those sorts of things. A belief system, a cognitive level, if you like, um, which is particularly important if you're engaging in a, a talking therapy. It's what are the underlying beliefs of that person that is guiding how they're thinking about life, how they're thinking about their illness. And there's a belief level to spirituality, a cognitive level. And then an inner dimension, the experience, which is what in Islam is called the hakikat, the, the tasting of the reality. And including in that is the effect of prayer, um, the miraculous, you know, that we always totally ignore. I you may remember Woody Allen in the film Annie Hall, who said, well, I've been in analysis for 17 years, I'm going to give it another then try Lourdes. And I'll refer to this later because I think one of the, we'll come on to, you know, the, the, almost like the hidden resistance of the NHS and other institutions to so the concept of spirituality. And when it, one is, I think, is encapsulated by Woody Allen. What if Lords is better than 17 years of analysis? So there's this level, and things like exorcism, which are difficult, we... My own view is it in some ways covers all three strands because you're dealing with the belief about exorcism as well or maybe not as the reality of it. So we started with that and we've stuck to that broad definition and when we, um, so we're clear what we're talking about. We're not, at least we're clear when we're talking about a belief system, when we're talking about an experience, when we're talking about something that needs to happen on the wall to enable somebody to deal with their normally religious belief. And we saw it as important to address this, partly because patients had been saying, users, that this was important to them. And I haven't gone into detail on the research, but we know there is research, particularly good research by the Mental Health Foundation, on the way that people go into a spirituality, into an inner experience, a search for meaning, in dealing with life's difficulties and as part of recovery. And most people do this and find it helpful, but it's like a secret life. It never comes into ordinary treatment. It's never addressed. And we felt that because standard psychiatry, psychology, doesn't address this dimension of people's lives, um, not only do you get almost like a parallel universe, it's people with their beliefs, their attempts to understand what's happening to them, completely detached from the professional way of formulating the problem and treating it. But if you don't address this dimension of people's lives, the outcomes are poorer. So that if you're, whether you believe, whether you don't believe, if you simply have the view that it's the duty of the NHS to provide effective treatments, then you have to address the spiritual dimension of people's lives. And to give us an example of how this is important, at a, at a very simple level, um, having you know, have a problem in Bradford with mixed wards, you know, for a Muslim and other populations, um, this discouraged people from using services. This is an outer-level practice, you know, the first level, if you like, of spirituality. So people wouldn't use services because the environment wasn't right. People couldn't practice their faith, and this made them feel uncomfortable and distressed. And at the second level, if you don't understand the belief system of somebody, you can't do CBT. I'll come on to CBT later as one of the examples of a that sort of non-spiritual way of seeing the individual, cognitive behaviour therapy, that is. But if you are going to use it, then whether you believe in fate, whether you have an idea of karma, whether you believe in 
um, that suffering is part of redemption, how you view sin, all these things and whole complex systems affect your mental state and need to be engaged with, at least to be understood by anybody that's attempting to change your pattern of cognition. And at a more spiritual level, we have people hiding what's really going on inside them, scared to admit maybe they're hearing a voice, scared to admit a particular belief. And from the psychiatric point of view, I think often inevitably partial diagnosis a failure to understand that sometimes states of distress can be part of growth, can be part of development. There's a story I heard about an 18th century Jewish rabbi, rather sort of Hasidic, messianic rabbis, who, if you're looking at it through the prism of modern psychiatry, you see he very clearly had a bipolar disorder. It was in excruciating states of painful depressions at other times, and then ecstatic states of what is believed by his followers to be revelation in the other. And certainly in the states of ecstasy inspired people. And you couldn't help feeling that, thank God, sodium lithium wasn't of lithium carbonate, wasn't around in 18th century Poland. Um, you know, if you dosed him up with that, the mood would have been stabilised, but no ecstasy, no revelation. And I'm not saying things are that simple, but if you're not, if people aren't talking about these things, if there isn't a, a, a an understanding of the self that incorporates that spiritual dimension. You blast everybody with psychotropic medication. If you don't understand the difference between a biochemical state of depression and a state of remorse, if you don't understand what is a static state of imbalance and what is a state of development and progress, painful as it is, um, the whole lot get the antidepressant. You know, sometimes you've hit right, sometimes you've blocked and interfered with the spiritual progress process. So for us, there needs to be at least a recognition this is a dimension of people's lives. The problem for us has become stark with ethnic minorities, that for those, say, Hindus and Muslims in Bradford, with very articulated religious beliefs, um, beliefs about the self, beliefs about illness, particular practices the failure of the NHS to address these has meant people have walked with their feet. And it's become so obvious that you have a psychotherapy department, or did have in Bradford, quite expensive, um, at least a few years ago, had never been able to maintain a single Asian client, and it had large numbers of Christians, again, leave the service and explicitly complaining of it. Nothing wrong with the service, just that very clearly it wasn't addressing the needs of a significant proportion of Bradford's population. And as a committee, I suppose we've often ridden on a sort of race agenda because that's where money's been, that's where there's been political pressure. But we've been also very clear about race, culture, religion and spirituality are very different concepts. Um, I mean, you're looking at spirituality, you're looking at something totally different to race. And there is always, well, is there always... There can be this problem in making sure you're keeping clear the difference. These are different things. We did have a vision, perhaps we do have a vision, for what we'd like to do as a committee, what we wanted to do. And starting with this very simple point of getting clinicians to acknowledge most people have something like a spiritual dimension of their lives, not blocking it. Simple as that. And then asking the question, asking the question in clerking, in assessment, do you feel you've got a religious problem? Or do you feel you've got a problem, or your problem is related to something spiritual? Do you want to speak to somebody about it? And this is important, because at one time, the assumption would be um, religion was part of everybody's lives. You know, chaplains in prisons, chaplains in the hospitals would be expected to deal with everybody unless they objected. It's not the case now. Confidentiality means chaplains can't get information or visit somebody unless the patient's asked. But unless you ask the patient, do you want to see the chaplain, nothing happens. So asking the question and then having a chaplaincy service that can respond, um, a chaplaincy service that can always be more integrated with clinical care, 
That's our vision. Even that doesn't address everything. It doesn't address those people that might have religious spiritual experience but no articulated belief, for instance. But it's a lot better than now. We're not keen on generic chaplaincy. Our view is, unless people don't mind, but most people want to see somebody in particular. And there are advantages to that. One is it's to recognise there are different cognitive systems, different attitudes to spirituality. Very broad terms between the Eastern religions and the monotheistic, but also within denominations. Um, the way a Catholic is going to think about matters to do with inner state can be very different to a Calvinistic Christian. And so even to talk about Christian chaplaincy in this context as it is too broad. Um, you give people what they want in specific ways. And often the person needs authority. If we do, if somebody, let's say a Catholic, is preoccupied with pathological guilt, it's no good me saying it. It is a Catholic priest who has you know, an authority to say, this isn't remorse, this isn't spirituality, this is something else. And you can only do that normally on a denominational basis. There is a problem that arises in news which we've thought about and haven't had to deal with in Bradford. But that is, we all have a common understanding about what are respectable faiths, if you like. But what about cults? Some trusts have had to appoint pagan chaplains. And, I mean, we take the view, if you've got a spiritual committee, we act as a sort of spiritual authority. We can give the fatwa, you know, we can say what happens under our imprimatur. Um, but, you know, be aware, you go down the equality agenda, at some point you're going to have to face well, can you have a pagan chaplain? What about some cult that professionals might well think is damaging people's mental health? Um, at some point it's been addressed, and it's useful to have, I think, that body of chaplains that at least can give an opinion on behalf of a trust or something. And if you do have a chaplaincy service, a chaplain's dealing with matters of mental health, I suppose, you avoid this problem of the professional having to wear, in a way, two hats, of all those ethical problems that come with, you know, somebody be accused of proselytising with a vulnerable person. It's clearer cut by using chaplains. The person's asked for it, you've asked the question, this is the person who's the expert in that field. And they're able to use the spiritual practices, the confession, the mass, the litany, the laying on of hands, um, which is something as psychologists or psychotherapists we're not trained to do. We can't do it. It's outside our limit. We would have hoped to have integrated into the NHS therapies that are actually based on belief. And with Hinduism and Islam, of course, we have articulated psychologies as well as therapies that relate to religious belief. It even principles of asylum design. Um, but in Christianity, we have examples where these values come in, Roman Catholic marriage guidance counselling, Christian counselling, um, a development in Aquinas therapy, and it's based on the ideas of self, St Thomas Aquinas, um, the Jungian Westminster Foundation, specifically Christian approaches. We'd like to see these available to people. Because we think they're often superior. And I mean, again, going to a very simple example, we're encouraged now in the health service, I think, of all states of low mood in one category, depression, you give it Prozac. From a religious point of view, things are much more complicated and that, or more subtle and distinguishing states of remorse from states of guilt and so on um, is important. What have we done, achieved? I would have said very little. In 10 years, some things to do with broad environments, um, the big things haven't happened. And I think it's important to recognise those points of resistance to this sort of change within institutions. And one being philosophical, um, both in the Freudian-based psychotherapies, is that view of religion being neurotic. And there's some basis for it. I mean, there's research showing that guilt as a factor in depression doesn't come into England until the mid-17th century. It comes with this sort of absorption of Puritan Christianity into the English psyche. 
And within my professional lifetime, it's passed out, probably sometime in the 1990s. Um, there's that view of man as rational that becomes articulate with the French Revolution and which drives CBT. You know, that man's rational. Anything irrational is neurotic. I've had a, a quote from a psychiatrist recently was when asked to address spirituality, said, what, we're in the 21st century? Um, so there are these points of resistance. And I think often the way forward is particularly using the government's new agenda on equality is for people to set up their own groups. Um, Indeed, probably in Bradford, the most successful um, therapies that address the spiritual have come from community groups the trust has supported, from Christian and Muslim and others, and particularly organisations with sharing voices. And this, I think, is a good approach to be able to say, well, we're going to provide um, a Christian-based counselling service um, and get it commissioned or get it integrated with what a, a trust is doing. We can hope that within trusts, using that agenda, we'll get better assessment and we'll get some uh, acknowledgement of the spiritual. But I'm not optimistic. I think it's, we've got an opening now for people to do it themselves and get commissioned. And as a last point, the Church of England used to have a psychologist, I'm not sure if it still has, um, but this was one person in church house who um, was there to advise. And I remember a, an example, this is from years ago, it's a very simple one. This conflict between religion, spirituality, and standard things is much more subtle. Um, but an Anglican with a sexual problem had gone to the Maudsley, and as part of his treatment, he was told to go to a brothel. Um, but he complained to the Church of England psychologist that got hold of the Maudsley. Well, you know, you think, but this wouldn't happen quite so starkly today, but it's an example. Somebody that's simply working on a sort of simple standard therapeutic models of the self doesn't consider values, doesn't consider how the treatment is going to impinge on that person's well-being. To have within a denomination one person who has authority that can be rung up, that can get on the phone to the hospital, whatever, that itself makes a difference. So I've over. No. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thanks. Do you want to chip in, or do you want yeah, to wait? I'll chip in. Okay. Okay. Hi, uh, I'm Shri. Uh, like Rashid, I'm working in Bradford Disciple Trust, and I want to sort of. Uh, take from where Rob started in the morning and also in the workshop which he did on whether Christians should be taking antidepressant. And the point which I wanted to make was that what has been very natural to us uh, has been uh, taken away from us in the sense uh, there is this divide which you talked about. And uh, there was a time when psychology was part of philosophy, part of religion, uh, faith, and then with the advancement of science and technology, uh, there was this division. And now uh, we are more controlled by the media, uh, by the corporate sector, by pharmaceutical industry. And uh, sometimes it does seem as if NHS is colluding with the pharmaceutical industry. And having attended uh, several conferences and seen the presentation, what we find is only uh, around 15 to 20% people do get benefit with medicines. And what happens with other 80%? And in that context, I think we need to also see that when these medicines and technological developments were not there, how people in ancient times were getting treated, what kind of help they were getting. Uh, can we say, uh, there were more people dying without, because there were no antidepressants than uh, it is more today? We can't. We can't say that. So I think that is the I think, uh, understanding we need to have. And uh, probably we need to see within ourselves as opposed to be, you know, being more controlled by the media or the industry. The second point uh, which I wanted to make and which Rashid did emphasize is that, yes, I mean, spirituality can be and should be, uh, you know, uh, sort of brought in into NHS 
uh, care. But uh, NHS does have uh, fears uh, about you know, implementing those agendas. And the fears are whether uh, it is evidence-based. You know, what is the evidence of spirituality, treating depression or schizophrenia or anxiety or whatever. But uh, there are evidence emerging, and uh, uh, Rob did mention the morning that, you see, uh, they have found that if uh, you're praying or if you're part of a faith community, uh, you know, your uh, chances of recovery or prognosis is much better than, uh, you know, uh, those who are not attending, uh, you know, faith community or prayers or things like that. So I think these are the things which need to be brought forward. And uh, in that context, I would certainly appreciate what the Royal College of Psychiatry has done, uh, as opposed to clinical psychologists. <laughs> because Royal College of Psychiatry has over 1,300 people who are part of the spiritual uh, special interest group. And that is a big achievement. And we have had conference where we invited psychologists and said, look, can you tell us whether spirituality works in the uh, clinical psychology profession? And would you, whether would you be willing to put that into the curriculum? So I think these are the things which we need to do. And other thing is that uh, in NHS, they are worried about that, you know, if we do bring in a spirituality, what about the accreditation? What about uh, the people, uh, their, you know, professional expertise, whether they are, you know, whether they are priests or vicar or whether they are professionals. Because, you know, you do come across, I mean, I'm talking about the Bradford, that you, you go into some Asian paper and you'll find a big full page saying, come to me and I'll uh, treat your financial problem, your mental problem. Uh, if you give me 5,000 pounds, I'll treat your diabetes. You know, you, you get all those kind of things. And, and these are the kind of worries uh, which NHS has. I, mean, I don't think NHS would be... Uh, not wanting it, and in fact, uh, across the country, uh, you have a lot of uh, you know talk about how to bring this spiritual agenda within NHS. And Scotland has been actually spearheading. I mean, can you believe you have a director of spiritual care in the Scottish executive, which none of the uh, you know uh, NHS trust in England have it? So I mean, so these things are there. But I think there is a need to you know govern these things because what. NHS would not want is to get people exploited, okay? And uh, yes, I mean, if drug works, it's fine, but if it's spirituality works, that's also okay. The third question is that how do we start implementing it? And you can do it only if you ask the questions. So if you have what Rashid talked about, the cognitive behavior therapy, so you have an assessment for it, and then you have a 12-week or 14-week, you know, uh, sessions, program for anxiety, phobia, whatever. Now, similarly, when it comes to spirituality, you have a methodology. You need to ask the question. If you do not ask, you will not get the answers. So what happens is that, you know, the therapist is very about asking a spiritual question. The client or the patient is very whether the therapist would like me to raise these things. So I think somewhere the therapist has to break that silence and ask questions and there are very straight uh, forward questions which rob had mentioned and it is there you know in literature about asking whether you belong to a faith and do you pray and in matters of crisis uh, how do you you know where do you get the strength from you know things like that you know so if you ask that you are creating an opening and once you have got that methodology, then comes the treatment or the therapy or whatever. So I think these things are important, and that's what I think NHS should be doing. And we are trying to uh, implement those things. Okay? I think I'll stop there. Thank Wonderful. You. Thank you. I want to keep us moving along fairly quickly because at the end what I want to do is to have a chance to, to really sort of ask some really tough questions of the panel. So can I restrict us to two questions of clarity? If there's anything you didn't understand that people have said, please pop your hand up and Ray's got a microphone. So one over there by the window, Ray, and one more person want to ask us a simple question of clarity over there. I'm a service user and... Uh, I heard, a I heard a talk 
by a clinical consultant, clinical psychologist from the Leeds Trust last year. And there's the, you're advocating that that needs to go forward so, as an alternative way to um, medication. The point that came across was scarce resources in that particular trust for folks to tap into uh, to benefit from those resources. Um, what happens where those resources are not available and who uh, can provide that type of service, which the NHS cannot provide? I think I, I did mention that earlier that uh, one other thing which should happen, which, which psychiatrists have taken the lead, that even within clinical psychology, the spirituality should be in the curriculum. Okay? And uh, when we held the conference uh, in 2007, we did invite uh, two course coordinators from the LEADS course, and they said, in fact, one of them uh, presented a very good paper with the evidence uh, about it, and uh, uh, I thought that was a beginning, that it should get into the course, so that the, the training clinical psychologists feel confident in terms of using it. Because, you see, when you are being taught in a certain way, and there's no mention of spirituality, there's no mention of cultural issues, then you know you don't bring that into practice. So I think it should be brought, and that's where the beginning will be. I think, General, the, the question of resources is a red herring. The, um, you can have a, a lot of the things we'd recommend cost nothing. Asking the question, have you got a spiritual need? Integrating the chaplaincy service effective into clinical care costs peanuts. Um, bringing something into the course is cost-neutral. Mm. Um, it's not about resources. On the contrary, if you're really thinking what's an effective clinical service, um, the investment of a tiny bit in chaplaincy brings an enormous benefit. The real problem is conceptual, it's philosophical, it's those sort of issues of just not being able to accommodate to a concept of spirituality. And also the issue is, you know, does a trust the size of Bradford, does it have 10 chaplains or does it have 30 chaplains? Probably both of those are ineffective. You know, what we're interested in is cultural change. You know, are the nurses and the GPs and the doctors, are they asking the question? Are they willing to raise it? And, you know, there will always be a shortage of chaplains, um, but, you know, we want to try and affect some of the cultural change. Um, on, on the back of that, if, if I can take the opportunity to move into Mel and perhaps save your question for the end, because one of the things that Mel's been doing in how is affecting cultural change by mobilising the masses and the churches and networking and a whole bunch of different things. So if I could hand over to Mel, I think Mel's got some slides, Frank. So, um, Mel, if you just talk Frank through. Do you want to stand here? Or? I'm all right here. You're okay there? These bar stools aren't great for five-foot dwarfs with dodgy joints. <laughs> So, yeah, my name's Mel. Um, I'm a specialist social worker working with Humber Mental Health Trust, um, working with community mental health team. Um, I've been doing that, sort of the current post, for all of six weeks. Um, in a way, it's sort of coming back to, coming back full circle to where I started. Next slide. So, just a little bit about my journey um, just really to give an idea about where I'm coming from and that journey that I've been on. Mental health has been part of my life since I was kind of that sort of size. Um, both my parents have mental health problems. So from being about eight years old, I was looking at a carer for both my parents and for my younger brothers and sisters. So for me, mental health's never been kind of out of my mind. It's always been almost normal. And so there's a natural progression to that. At I went to, when I went to university to do my first degree in theology for some reason, um, I ended up getting involved with the university welfare service, student support, as a peer support worker. And the thing that really came across there was the number of students who had mental health problems but were very isolated, not getting the support they needed. And being the activist that I am, I decided I was going to do something about it. So we set up working with the university counselling service and with other people within you know, the um, student support service, we set up the Solace Network, which was basically students helping students 
through self-help, befriending, email support networks, support groups, and actually asking as a first point of contact for people who didn't feel ready or didn't feel able to maybe go to their GP or seek support or help from elsewhere. So in a way, this has been, you know, it was natural that when, you know, I finished my degree and it was that big question about what on earth did you do with a degree in theology, the Church of England didn't want me. So I became a social worker. <laughs> That's a story in itself. Um, again, specialising in mental health. Ch- you know, wasn't interested in child protection or child care, but because mental health was something that I felt so passionate about, it seemed natural to specialise and go down that route. Did that for a few years, um, and then ended up with a very interesting job working with an organisation called Search, which acts as a support for local churches involved in community work and social action, um, and also acts as a link between churches and the voluntary community sector, NHS, health, social services, both raising awareness and helping groups to work in partnership. Just before I go on to a little bit about the work that we did, I'm just interested how many people are involved in church-based community work or social action. Yeah. Okay, one of the things we discovered working with search was just the sheer impact and number, you know, that church community projects put into the local community and the amount of support that they give. So putting it in context, these are some figures um, about mental health in the UK. So about two, and forgive me if you already know this, but I just want this sort of to come across really as sort of as a lead into what I'm going to be saying next. So about two, out of every thousand people, about 250 to 300 will experience mental health problems in Britain each year. Of those, 230 will visit the GP. About 102 will be diagnosed as having a mental health problem, whether it's depression or anxiety, mainly. Of those, 24 will be referred to specialist services, and about six will become inpatients. Our main concern is really at the bottom, you know, out of the, those... Th- sort of 200 people a year who are maybe experiencing mental health problems and not getting any help or support from whether it's through medical, you know, through GP, primary care or any other form. And becoming, we became very aware through talking to people, talking to church leaders, people who ran for, you know, community projects, that a lot of these people were people who were coming in contact with churches and other faith groups, whether it was through the drop-ins, Sunday morning services, lunch clubs, or what, you know, the community youth work, you know, the projects that you're probably all involved in. So the work that we've been doing in Hull, I'm not going to stand here and say that it was all highly planned, well thought through, and that we got it right. To be honest the mental health and faith partnership happened by accident. So really, a couple of things that were going on. One was that we had the local authority panicking because of the single equality duty that Rashid talked about coming in and the fact that they had to start integrating spirituality, faith and belief as part of their overall equality policy. And not really knowing what to do. You know, practitioners were say, holding up their hands in the air and saying, we're stuck. So w- one hand, we were being approached by sort of professionals, by the training department saying, well, what do we do about this? We want to develop some training, some awareness training. Can you help us? At which point we said, yes, we'd love to. The other sort of side of it was that as part of that, the whole community cohesion strategy locally was sort of getting into questions, you know, developing the partnerships and that 
local authorities, statutory organisations, health, had to prove that they were working in partnership with the voluntary community sector and faith groups. So, and again, it was an opportunity that was too good to miss, really. Um, And then we also had a member, head of partnerships in the Mental Health Trust, was doing a piece of work around social inclusion, became very aware of what churches were doing particularly and wanted to talk. So a lot of this happened by accident, but being the activist that I am, it was too good to sort of just let go. It's like, right, this is happening, let's exploit it for all it's worth. But the other side of this was that we found that we were opening up a can of worms, that we were discovering, you know, by talking to professionals, by talking to service providers, by talking to faith group leaders, staff and volunteers, that a lot of people had concerns about mental health, about faith, about how do we relate to, how do we support people with mental health problems in a faith context? How do we relate to faith when we're working in a mental health context? And really, the sort of bringing all of that together, the talking to people and consultation, ended up with a conference in June 2006. We thought it was going to be a nice, cosy little sort of 30 people having a little lunch at the Ensley Centre, which is a Christian conference centre in Hull. Um, what it ended up being was over 300 people. And we realised, I think, that we'd actually hit on something that people were actually concerned about, were wanting to sort of know more about and to work with. So what did we discover? I think the first thing is that many churches and mosques and other faith groups are attended by people with mental health needs. Often these are the people that are slipping through the net, you know, that 200 that never actually come into contact with services or maybe come into contact with services but are turned away because they're told that they're not unwell enough or that they seem to be functioning. We also discovered that church leaders, faith group leaders, staff and volunteers have very little awareness or training in mental health and often feel ill-equipped to provide support. You know, it's... That people, often the staff and the volunteers, church faith group leaders, don't feel confident in knowing when or how to refer on or, more to the point, where to refer on. So maybe struggling away trying to support someone that is actually going beyond their limits and boundaries, but don't know what else to do with that person, or they go for they stick their head in the sand and pretend it's not happening approach, or they run in the opposite direction because I don't understand this and it's out of my depth, so I don't want anything to do with it. At the same time, we were finding that there was very little understanding in the NHS and the local authority into the role of the voluntary and community sector. And, you know, actually the value that, and the amount of support that the VCS and faith groups put into providing community support. And I don't know if, how many of you experienced this, but also that suspicion of what do faith-based groups actually do? What do Christians do? There was a need for increased awareness and training and this issue of the culture. You know, in churches, in faith groups, we quite often have our own language, our own culture, our own customs and ways of doing things. But actually in the NHS, we're just as bad or in social services. And that while we all seem to be talking a different language, actually what we're aiming for is the same thing, which is about, you know, helping people towards wholeness, to functioning better, to live in their lives, you know, have an increased quality of life. And I think the other thing that came across very strongly for us was that there was just huge potential for faith and community groups to identify and enable early intervention for people with mental health problems and 
And this is the important bit, to promote recovery. And I think this was the thing that really struck us as being something that we needed to address and work with. So is this going to work? I so keep going. I mean, this is a model of mental health that... Can you just keep going? So we have, you know, this is a a model of mental health that has become quite... You know, that what we're aiming for is recovery. And that might mean that people do have serious mental health problems, but, you know, may have symptoms, but can actually still function. They can be involved in community activities. Um... Similarly, what we're looking at, we're working towards, is actually having people who maybe don't have a diagnosable illness, but actually improving their mental health, so their self-esteem, their ways of functioning, and seeing a role for churches and faith groups in that. And the answer to this, I think we found, was we, we got involved in the national pilot of the Mental Health First Aid Programme. Um, so we've sort of got managed to secure funding through the Neighbourhood Renewal Fund and the PCT to run a 12-hour course for church leaders, volunteers and staff and the wider volunteering community sector, which looks at how to meet, you know, how to identify mental health problems, how to pick up the signs and symptoms, how to deal with, how to relate to someone, how to deal with a crisis when and how to refer on, how to promote that positive mental health. Um, so that was, for us, that was a big step forward, and the outcome of that has actually been incredibly positive, you know, that people are now feeling more equipped to work with and to actually include people with mental health problems in faith groups, in churches, in community pro- projects, but also getting rid of some of that fear that, maybe church leaders, Christians, have around referring on. You know, that suspicion that runs two ways about, well, we don't know what mental health services, psychiatrists and all that do, so we won't actually refer on. But also dealing with some of the stigma around mental health and actually putting mental health on people's agendas. And I think this became particularly apparent really came into practice during the floods in June 2007 in Hull, where it's estimated that over 8,000 people's homes were flooded. And these are just some images that haven't come up too well on the screen. But anyway. <laughs> so some of the challenges, I think, to partnership work in. I think the first one is actually about creating that culture of trust. You know, breaking down some of those barriers, talking, actually showing that we are, you know, that we're not out to convert everyone, that our aims and our values are about the individual and helping that individual towards wholeness. Knowing boundaries, you know, it can be so easy for us to get so hung up on what our boundaries and limits are and it's good that we know them, but also being able to have that trust so that people are, you know, that we're willing to refer on, that we're willing to work in partnership and acknowledge what each other's doing. And I think the biggest challenge has been about getting mental health and faith on the agenda and actually getting people talking. Because until it gets on the agenda and stops being an issue that we sort of push to one side any sort of step forward in partnership working isn't going to happen. So here's two sort of images. You know, what we're aiming for is churches and faith groups where actually people are able to say that God is in my darkness, you know, rather than we don't want to know. Or the other approach, which is... The next screen. This. You know, speaks for itself, doesn't it? <laughs> and yeah, that is something that does happen. And hopefully, as awareness builds of what mental health is about and the relationships build, hopefully, we're going to move away from that. We still may be a long way, but that's the hope.
Also, as I've always mentioned, cross-cultural communication. You know, that in churches, quite often our language is very different. And sometimes we do need that sort of translation. We need to actually be able to speak each other's languages, to listen, to realize that our aims, our goals are the same thing. And maybe this is what church looks like to some professionals. You know, people who are looking at the church and not actually understanding what we are, what we stand for. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a challenge, really. And this is a verse from Ezekiel, which said, I look for someone to stand up for me against all this, to repair the defences of the city and to take a stand for me and to stand in the gap to protect this land so I didn't have to destroy it. This is God speaking. But I think there is a challenge for us as churches, as professionals, to actually stand in the gap, to act as the translators, to build the bridges and to actually move forwards. So just a few things that I think have been really key to our experiences. First is find your friends. You know, within the local authorities, PCT, the voluntary community sector, NHS trusts. Go and have a coffee with them, talk to them. Try and do some, you know, help to break down some of those barriers that Christians don't have three heads and speak a foreign language. You know, we're human. Get involved in local strategies and networks, the local strategic partnership, the various groups. Build the relationships. Let people know what you're doing. For churches, find out about current policies and initiatives and make the most of them. You know, particularly at the moment around uh, community cohesion and sort of building... Um, you know, the equality and diversity. I think the final thing is don't be afraid to challenge. And this goes for all of us, whether we're working as professionals or as representatives of local churches or faith groups. Don't be afraid to challenge and don't be afraid to be challenged. Okay, what I'd like to do, we're just, I'm keen to sort of finish relatively promptly so you can get your coffee and all that kind of thing. Just a reminder, you can get CDs of these talks from downstairs and all the slides will be up on the website within the next week or two. The audio will take a little bit longer, but it will be there eventually. So what I'd like to do is get us now into groups of about five or six, which sounds like quite a big number, but I'd like you to... Think about these things, you know, share amongst yourselves what struck you most, what really clicked with where you're at in the kind of situation you're working in at the moment. And, and why don't you come up with one question to ask the panel. And I'd love it, all six of you to sort of think, this is the thing we really want to know, rather than us just sort of taking questions from individuals. It'd be great to take questions from a group. So if you can get into groups of five or six, just for a few minutes, and we'll try and get some questions back. Right. So what we're after is is one question. Is there a group? Is there a group who's got a question? One there. Karen? Okay, if, if you could just be drawing your discussions to a close, because we've just got a few minutes left, and hopefully you can carry them on after if you want to stay here, but we need to let people go for tea and coffee. Shh. That's, that, that works best, doesn't it? Okay, right, this, this group here. Hi, just thank you, all of you, to the panel. It's been really interesting to hear your different points of view and different perspective. But we've just been wondering here at the the Christian conference, to what extent are we okay to think that what we think is the truth and when can we actually sort of put that across? And the reason I ask this is because I saw a really interesting article in the Women's Times this week, which is a problem page where you can write into a psychologist. And a student wrote in, sort of basically saying, "Um, I just want to get on with my student life, but I feel that I'm a sinner who's going to hell. And that psychologist replied to her and said that thoughts of being a sinner and having to go to hell are often described as persecutory delusions of a religious nature. And she said to this person that these beliefs cloud and distort reality. You are not a sinner, 
God will not judge you nor send you to hell. And these feelings show that you are vulnerable. And she actually said, you know, go and speak to your GP because you need to speak to a mental health practitioner. Um, Whereas we'd all be saying, fantastic, the Holy Spirit is moving in that woman, convicting her of the truth, um, and she needs to, to speak to somebody and find out about Jesus and finds out that she's got no reason to feel guilty, but that what she's struck upon is the truth. And, you know, as, as Christians who work in the NHS, when people come to us with those sorts of problems, we want to speak our, our views, but... You know, we're fearful of becoming like Caroline Petrie and being suspended for speaking out, even when people ask us. So I just wondered what you guys thought of that. Hmm. Well, I, it's, I think the answer is different group denominations set up their own services and have them available, whether that's through separate commissioning. So if we want an Islamic counselling service, I mean, the Trust might provide it, but I think Normally, there's incredible resistance, and there are some professional difficulties doing it. The group set up outside, Christian Counseling Service, marriage, you know, Catholic Marriage Guidance, it gets commissioned, or it's there. As long as you sort of deal with your own, as it were, um, that's the safest. It sort of doesn't involve the trust taking a theological position. Um, it's meeting a need. The only problem comes is about, well, what is a... You know, an orthodox, safe, religious movement, and what is a dangerous sect. And there's no definition of it. I, I can only say we need a, you know, a common-sense approach or, you know, a, I, don't know I, I don't know. I mean, I, we haven't had to face that dilemma in Bradford, but it is faced in other places. Does that make sense to you? And also... Um you know, perhaps that sort of question, similar question is, you know, what, what do you do if you are a Christian going to see a, a standard psychologist or psychiatrist or something and you feel that person is paying absolutely no due attention or regard to the stuff that you're wanting to bring in? Is, is there a sort of course of action? I mean, you know, do you complain or, I mean, you don't want to complain, but, you know, what, what do you do? Because, I mean, you, you'd, you'd hope that a sensitive sensible psychologists would be able to work with a person of faith even if they disagreed, but it doesn't always doesn't happen. Have, I think the simple, cheap solution is, you know, the Church of England has its psychologist. You ring up and say, I'm being told this by my therapist, I don't feel it's right, what do you think? And that person rings up the hospital. It used to happen. It's me. Um, right, it's you. <laughs> they ring up me uh, occasionally. <laughs> um, the... Um, the expensive way is you, you have a free market. I'm a sort of Thatcherite. And, you know, my view is, you know, if the health service is providing something that doesn't suit people, then other people set up their own groups. Um, and that's probably the best. You know, then you've got a choice. You know, I, no, I don't like this therapy. It doesn't suit me. It's not, it's not engaged with my cognitive system, my belief system. Um, it's not making me feel good. So I go there instead. Um, I think there's something as well about as professionals actually being aware of what there is, what goes on in our local community, you know, what services are available, what does the voluntary community sector do, what do faith groups in our area provide, and actually being able to signpost on. And I think there's that part of that as well is about us not being too precious and actually being able to be honest that we're going outside our area of expertise or out of the area of our knowledge. You know, it's okay to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure about that. And it takes a lot of courage sometimes to say, I'm not sure, but I can signpost you on to this church project that offers counselling and is able to, may be able to help you in a way that I can't. It's challenging, it's dangerous, but it's also a responsibility that we've got as professionals to actually find out and know what there is in our local communities. And to say, I, I can't help you. I mean, you know, I'm a, as a psychiatrist, so I suppose I'm meant to do sort of diagnosis, whatever that is, but sometimes that is saying, you are not mentally ill. Therefore, you don't go any further down this route. Um, actually, and people say, well, what is wrong with me? And I say, well, I think, you know, th th this could be a spiritual problem. And I don't mind saying stuff like that because I'm happy to say you are not mentally ill. You may not be mentally healthy, but you're not mentally ill, and we're not going down this route. Or likewise, you don't need CBT for this, because although you may have these negative thoughts, it's not part of a psychological formulation of depression that we'd understand and say, you know, you're not being dragged down by this stuff. This is not a vicious circle. 
this is a, a sparkle, a trigger. Can we use this? Where do you go with that? So I think you know, having confidence as professionals to say, this, is, this isn't what's going on is important. What, what are the group? Yes, group at the back there with a, with a question. Right, we've got time for one more group after this, so Excellent. hands straight up. Some of us thought that um, Shri's point about asking questions which opened up spiritual discussion was very good, and we, some of us liked that and thought that was very much to the point, and would kind of open up a whole series of questions of a spiritually broad nature, if we can use that term, not specific to a particular domination or even a particular religion, a very broad kind of spirituality. And we thought it might actually also reveal some problems which people might have. There are sort of negative forms of spirituality. Now, if we go back to what Rob said this morning about asking a question of a client, of a patient, and I think your point, Rob, was that 80% of people might actually not want to engage with that. Some of us thought that was very unfortunate, actually, because if 80% are not talking about their spirituality, mm. then there's a whole dialogue that's missing mm. there. Mm. So we welcomed Shri's point, and we really thought that it, it, it sort of suggested a much broader kind of version of spirituality. And I mean, as, as an evangelical Christian, I suppose people might ask me, well, are you happy talking about other forms of spirituality or non-faith-based spirituality? The answer is equivocally yes, Partly because I believe God is at work in the invisible. And secondly, because, you know, it, it was Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, who said, how do you defend... Someone asked him, how do you defend the gospel? And he said, well, how do you defend a lion? It, it defends itself. And I'm, I'm very happy to put the whole lot on the table. I'm very happy to be part of an interfaith panel like this today. I'm more than happy to put the whole lot out there. And if Jesus is God, it'll work itself out. You know, so I'm, I'm very happy and relaxed about that as an evangelical. And actually... I'm very aware that my particular brand of Christianity may not, may not have all the answers. Um, and, you know, the approach I was suggesting from the Alcoholics Anonymous book this morning, just allowing we agnostics to begin to believe, actually I think is what Jesus did, just hanging out with people, encouraging them. And, yes, he had a destination in mind, but, you know, we can, we can allow broad discussions around spirituality, even if it seems very far away from what we call Christianity. Rashid, yeah. What I was talking about was what is safe and simple. If you're going to ask just one or two questions in everybody's standard assessment, um, we're not talking about somebody going to psychotherapy, this is everybody coming into the service, then to ask, is there somebody you want to speak about a spiritual problem is a lot better than now. And you have to make it denominational unless the person says otherwise. If they say... Yeah, I don't care who I speak to, though. But if someone's on the road to seize them. Mm. Um, but if they say, well, I really want to see a Catholic priest, they see the Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for it. Theology does matter, and there are differences in, you know, are you going to go to Mass? Are you going to go to confession? And, mm -hmm. you know, do mm -hmm. you want to visit a shrine? These things vary. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, or if we're doing therapy with somebody, you have to judge it, I think. I mean, I, I'm aware there comes a point... I think in general terms, particularly models of therapy can deal with spiritual matters. There comes a point when I would feel to say, I know that you are now getting to something quite specific, say, about Christian belief. And you go and see, you know, the vicar. You go and see the person that's appropriate to it. Um, you have to make that judgment. Um, and you have to be aware, you know, it, 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 it